What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ankit Sood of Nuvu Capital. Nuvu is one of the top performing multi-strategy funds in the world with stakes in Segment, Plaid, Hims, Duolingo, and many others. Within his role, Ankit focuses primarily on evaluating and supporting growth stage fintech and enterprise software companies. In this talk, we discuss growing slow and scaling culture as you expand your team, venture funds attempting to decommoditize themselves, and some thoughts on the current state of valuations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So everyone, I want to welcome uh, a very special friend to this episode of the Confluence BC podcast. We've got Ankit, who most people here don't know, but he's been a friend to me before I was in, or technically the first year I was ever in BC, when I was at ABC, when he helped get me a job coming out of Claremont McKenna, our mutual alma mater, at an investment bank. So he changed my life. And I would not be me in any way without him really saying himself. So thank you, Ankit. And from there, we can jump in. Thanks for having me, Tyler. And yeah, I don't know if I could take credit for any of that. But I do remember hanging out with you at Phil's on Market Street many <laughs> years ago. Um, I don't know if I scared you away from banking or what, but you did try it for a little bit. So I'll take that as the win. Yeah, yeah. At that time, I was really not feeling Morgan Stanley. And uh, you were a catalyst at the time. And I remember there was like a bidding war or something like that because you were their best person ever, apparently. And you're far too humble. But how about we get started? And before we talk about New View, which is run by Ravi out of NEA, who's just a legend over there. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? You've had a very, very interesting path, both as a human being and as an investor slash operator. Sure. Yeah, you've heard the story. I was born in India. I left when I was pretty young. Moved to Singapore and then New York, which is where I ended up growing up. Moved back to India actually for high school before coming to Claremont McKenna, Southern California, which is our alma mater. And so bounced around a little bit before before college, but have been in California ever since. While I was at CMC, I ended up spending a, a semester in the Bay Area working for a, a startup in San Jose and living in Mountain View. I don't know if, did you do that same program? I did, man. Silicon Valley program, for those who don't know, is this program at the Claremont Consortium where you get to go effectively work wherever you want in Silicon Valley. And then our professors literally fly to us every weekend and give us classes. It was pretty dope and gives us a competitive advantage. So, yeah, I did that. That's how I entered into VC. That's when I went to go work for Joe Lonsdale and Drew that's and right. those folks at ABC. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I ended up doing that the first semester they offered it. So it was a bit of a guinea pig situation, but I'm glad I did. It ended up being the reason that I told myself, I've got to come back to the Bay Area. I've got to be in Silicon Valley and find a way to, to work up here. So I'm, I'm glad I did that. And then given that I had that experience, I made it my mission to come back up to the Bay Area. I ended up at Catalyst Partners out of college, which is a sell-side investment bank focused on technology companies. I was there for a few years before spending a little time at a 
Series A fintech company back in Mumbai, which is a, which is an awesome experience and one I recommend to, to anyone. Before joining General Atlantic, which is a growth equity fund based out in New York, I was based in the Palo Alto office, focused on enterprise software and services. So that was the, the kind of very linear banking to, to private equity jump that I made. And, and then somewhere along the line, Julia Schoenstein, who's a good friend of mine from Catalyst and is now at NEA, she introduced me to Ravi at NEA, who was thinking of spinning out and starting his own fund. And I met with Ravi several times. I thought he was one of the most thoughtful people I'd ever met. And after spending, spending a good amount of time getting to know each other, I, I was excited to join him at New View in late 2018, which is when we spun out of NEA. So New View, it's a $2 billion mid to late stage growth fund. And I focus on fintech and enterprise software for them. Happy to talk about new view and, and stuff later down the line, but that's where I'm at now. And it's been a fun path to get here a little bit, maybe more traditional upfront, but, but I've enjoyed it. And I think I've made my share of uh, mistakes along the way. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't call you all traditional, but I, I think you all are pretty innovative for, for the space you're playing in for sure. And also we, I realized we're now growing our audience to a lot of people who are trying to break into VC and like figuring out banking. Yeah. Uh, what I want to do is take a second and just say Catalyst is one of the best tech M&A shops in the world. And uh, they're one of the most selective. So if anyone here is like considering the MS Goldman route, consider them as well. The training and the folks that I meet out of that shop, like are phenomenal. It's a good group. It's definitely a good group of people. We, a few of us that, that have come out of Catalyst and are still good friends to this day, have a running competition going, which is which of us can back a company that is first sold by Catalyst. So we, we're still fighting to to win that competition. And I think, you know, they tend to only sell companies that are quite large. And so <laughs> that's the name of the game at this point for me. Well, they, what's really interesting about them is they there's also like these reports that came out about how Catalyst like relative to relative to the market has 10 or 20% above market exit values. I don't understand how they do it or why people keep buying from them, but they are really good at what they do. So tech companies who are listening to this, check out Catalyst. They're great. Yo, how about you take a second to tell us a little bit about NewView? Yeah, NewView is a pretty new fund starting in, in late 2018. And the whole premise of the fund is basically around acknowledging that there's a lot of capital in growth stage investing. And so it's not that we were thinking, let's go do the same thing. We were really thinking, and really Ravi was thinking, how do we do things a little differently? And so the, the kind of origin of the, the fund was Ravi thinking about companies, you know, historically staying private a lot longer than any other investors anticipated. And what that really meant for the whole ecosystem, not just for the companies. You have venture funds raising capital faster and faster. You have LPs who are committing more and more capital. And what you're finding is there's a ton of dollars really locked up in, in older venture funds and in growth stage companies that are high quality companies, but just haven't exited yet. That could be a company as great as Stripe, let's say. And so Ravi's idea, and I think it's relevant across the venture ecosystem, but he applied it to NEA, was can we find a set of growth stage companies within NEA that we could pull out into a separate fund. And so what we did is we raised $1.4 billion for our first fund. We paid NEA roughly a billion dollars on day one for a set of assets. And if you think about the win-win-win scenario that we were able to put together, it was really NEA's LPs getting distributions, NEA partners getting some of their board load back and obviously accelerating themselves into carry as well when it was relevant. 
And then for us, we got to have a pre-baked portfolio of what we thought were really high quality growth companies, companies on the high end as big as Uber and 23andMe and Duolingo. And at the low end, we've got some really exciting companies that were around the 10-ish million dollar ARR mark and have have since done really well. Scout RFP being sold to Workday is an example of the, one of the early companies that, that ended up performing quite well for us. And so that's how we got started. And since then, we're always thinking about how do we do things a little differently and how do we add to the ecosystem versus just being yet another player. And so what we decided is we're going to really compete on kind of three different things. One is super flexible. I've been at a more traditional shop. I know others have as well, where you're bound by all these rules. How much can you invest? How much of the company do you need to own? And you have all these rules that don't really make a whole lot of sense. And they're more there as a matter of process and a matter of fund thesis, if you will, and, and, and don't always make sense for the company. And so we ended up um, saying, let's just throw all that out the window. We will invest anywhere from you know, five to a hundred million. We've done more, we've done less than that even. And we'll lead deals for the most part, but we're, we have no ego around it and we follow as well. We, we do primary investing and secondary investing. We've, we own some companies up to 30% of them and other companies we own less than 1%. And it really doesn't matter to us. What matters is it the right uh, thing for the company? Is it the right investment for the company and for their stage? And, and then secondly, we try to be as operational as we can be. There's a lot of funds that do amazing operational work at the early stage. And we thought about being that way for the growth stage. And so we have more operating partners than we do investing partners. I think we'll always be this way. It'll always be core to what we do. And it's beyond just attending board meetings. It's really consulting type projects with companies who might need it. And the third way we try to compete is what I mentioned with NEA, which is we, we really think that this whole trend of providing liquidity to VC firms is a larger one. And so as part of our business, we have a kind of a committed pool of capital that we can put to work giving liquidity to venture funds so they can, they can distribute to their LPs and push themselves up into carry and maintain a healthier balance of, of portfolio. And in exchange, we get to work with great companies and take them over for the growth stage. Yo, I really love that last point. So I've met a few people in the Confluence community who have a strategy where they're just buying secondaries from VCs. And I think that's brilliant. But I haven't met anyone who's doing it at the scale that you are. And that being said, have you all ever considered purchasing other people's portfolios or large chunks of their portfolios? Or do you mostly do it on a per company basis? Yeah, and- that's, a, that's a great question. And I think that is exactly what we try to use to differentiate ourselves within what is already a bit of a niche investment strategy. And that is, I think we're the only investors who do purchase uh, large scale portfolios at a time. Uh, we did it with NEA. We've done it a few times after that as well um, for other funds. And th- what we do is, and what we're able to do is we can purchase $20 million stake in one company from a venture fund, or we can purchase a billion dollars worth of 40 companies out of a venture fund. And so it's really a matter of finding the right fit, finding a GP who sees the value in what we're doing. We don't do the very, there, there is a world where you can sell your companies for a 40% discount to get liquidity. What we think about is we don't really love that, that, that strategy. What we would rather do is partner with a venture fund to acquire away their position in high quality companies and in exchange pay a fair, pay a fair value for that. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. I also think you, you're the only firm that I know with the consulting like Robert Smith DNA. You come in and actually add that, that operational lift into the growth towards IPO. I think that's like a, a very interesting take. 
And I think that you'll end up yielding some very outstanding returns just on the back of being able to effectively pick and choose where you get your deals, which are already great growing deals. And then adding that left as well. So congrats to you all. I've been obsessed yeah. with your strategy since you first told me you were joining. Thanks. You- no, it's been, it's been a kind of a fun ride since we first spoke about it, but I know I've given, I've given you the update over the years. Yeah. I've also over the years just seeing you grow the team. Like you are a founding member of the team. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like, some of the pros and cons that come with scaling an investment team, especially with the type of AUM and like the scope of what you all do? Yeah. First of all, even before you get to scaling the team, I think everyone, especially a lot of your listeners who are early on in thinking about their career should consider going to a fund that is either a first time fund or early in its history where you can really build something. You and I have a buddy who, who did that with uh, 8VC. And I think it- Yeah, it, shout out to Jerome. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> he has, in, and he's a great example of this. And 8VC is a great example of this, where you can come from behind, be a, a fund that didn't exist. And a few years later, you've really built something, you've created something enduring. And so I've had a lot of fun with that. As much fun as I like my day job of, of sourcing, executing new investments, I think I've had a great time building the team here as well, or helping Ravi put together a team that's a lot of, it's just a great, great group of people. And yeah, we started off as five or six of us. We're now 13. I think the biggest thing that we've noticed is that we talk about culture being key. I'm sure you all think about it the same way, right? Given where you are, where you've worked and you've noticed different cultures and trying to maintain that as tough as you scale. But we have a pretty big benefit of hiring slowly, right? If you think about it relative to the startups that we back, we've, we've gone from five to 13. It sounds like a lot. But relative to the companies that we back, it's that's pretty slow growth. And so that's a big advantage, I think. I'll give you an example. So I met Christina Fa in 2019. Who is awesome, by the way. She is great. She was at Atomico in London. Actually, shout out to Sean Lee Mabadala, who put us in touch originally. And we ended up spending the next six months getting to know Christina and letting her kind of get a better, better sense of us. And when she finally joined us, it was early 2020, like a week or two before lockdown. I don't know how she's managed through that. But when she joined us, there was no doubt that she'd be a great addition to the team. There was, we knew that she would be exactly uh, what we were looking for. And hopefully she has been happy with her experience as well. So taking it slow is something that I think venture funds have the advantage of being able to do when scaling culture. So everyone who's listening, Anka is basically justifying why it takes venture capital firms so goddamn long to hire. <laughs> exactly. No, I will say, having been on the other side of that, it's a nightmare. I don't know what the. I, I don't know how to justify it other than to say that you don't want to break the machine. But having been on the side where you're just looking to break into the industry, it sucks. It sucks. What's not? What's okay? Maybe is taking time. What's not okay is like ghosting candidates and some of the other kind of practices that we've seen. Having tried to break into the industry or kind of move from one firm to another in the industry. I think there's a difference between taking your time and making the right decision and then mistreating candidates. And it's actually not such a fine line. Yeah, I I totally agree. Hopefully there's a way to make this a bit more efficient, but the the advantages lie on the firm side. So it is what it is. Think about what you guys are doing, right? Confluence is a good example of making at least the discovery part more efficient. Before platforms like Confluence, it was even more obscure on who's hiring. <laughs> Can you imagine recruiting and venture in a different city, for example, before these kinds of platforms existed? So things have already gotten better and it's in large part because of what, what you all are doing. That's a great point. It's so funny because when I was trying to break in, it was like, Ankit, please help me. 
Drew, please help me. And maybe John Gannon blog. By the time it got to John Gannon blog, there's probably like 500 to 1,000 people in front of you versus now. If you talk about like us and I want to talk about Black VC or even, even Megan's Gen Z VC, Mm-hmm. there's who knows how many VC jobs that get posted on there on a daily basis by the person who's doing it. And that's the first place they go. So I guess for us, you can't really get it in black VC. You probably can't really get it if you're not in the industry, but definitely check out Gen Z VC if you're not in the industry, because a lot of jobs get posted there for anyone who's listening. Let's see, where do we want to go? So we've talked about the portfolio liquidity piece. We talked about, we talked about the firm. You want to talk a little bit about how capital is becoming more and more commoditized. And, yeah, uh, this is something I feel like you and I have spoken about before, and I'm sure you've spoken to, I know you've spoken to a few guests about it as well. And I don't think there's any surprise there that capital is becoming commodity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's things that venture funds try to do to decommoditize themselves. They become specialists in a space. So they, that basically means they have a special level of knowledge or they become more operational as we try to do. And there's kind of other things that they can do to differentiate themselves beyond just the capital. Um, but I actually think there's a bit of an advantage, not to the venture investors, but think about the, the entrepreneur uh, and their side of the equation. And so when you have capital getting so commoditized, what you can do really is you have this opportunity. I think you can do two things. You can either bake everyone off against each other until you have the highest value possible and you don't dilute yourself, which I think is one approach that founders take. It's not one that I appreciate, obviously being biased on on this side of the equation. Or on the other side, what you could do is say, okay, capital is commoditized. Let me decide who I really want to partner with for the next 10 years. And we're seeing so many founders do that where they say, especially in the last few months as we've seen valuations go through the roof, We've seen a lot of founders, especially the ones that think about culture being key and think about wanting to work with the right people for, the, for a long period of time. They can use this environment to basically choose for themselves who they really want to work with long term. There is some advantage to all the craziness that's going on. And then you talk about valuations and it's a whole, whole different story. Valuations are gross, man. Actually, shout out to one of our previous podcast guests, Ken So, who's put out a really interesting piece on valuations that me and clay just so you like myself and clay invest in enterprise fintech b2b etc and we get it like it's an attractive space high contract values really nice exits over the last 10 years but like how do you feel about companies raising at 10 to 100x forward-looking revenues yeah i think i think there's reason to be concerned i think I'm going to say something that's a little controversial, which is that I think entry valuation is a factor in determining returns. Like I know that's not supposed to be controversial, but for some reason it seems to be controversial these days. And I think people are maybe losing sight of just the math and how the math works. That said, multiples are not always the right way of thinking about it either. So a couple of my former colleagues from General Atlantic, Alex Immerman and David George, they're now at A16Z and they wrote a piece in August last year called When Entry Multiples Don't Matter, which is a bit of a clickbaity title. But I think if you read it and you read it the right way, what they're actually not arguing that entry valuations don't matter. Just that the multiples themselves are dependent on so many other factors, growth, risk, margins, market size, all of that. And so I think looking at things from a purely multiple-based perspective and saying this number is higher than previous numbers isn't the whole story. But I think it is still important. And, and so it's really a balance between optimism 
and realism. All of us are in venture because we have a certain amount of optimism for the way the world will develop over time, how software might eat it. But at the end of the day, we'll be judged on our track records. And it's so much more relevant, especially for, I think, our generation, where we are building our track records now. We're not resting on previous track records. And so we'll be judged on how these investments turn out. And I think for founders, it's worth considering what implications a high valuation can have. Of course, it means less dilution up front. 100x Series A, for example, leaves much less room for mistakes down the road. You really have to maximize and quote unquote, grow into that valuation. And if you don't, what does that really mean? What does a down round look like? And are you sure that your current investors who are giving you that kind of price are setting you up for success? And so I think people should spend more time thinking about that. That said, there's a lot of conversation around is 100 billion the, the new 1 billion outcome? Maybe someday. I think if you even extrapolate five, seven, 10 years from now, do I think there will be as many $100 billion outcomes as there were billion dollar outcomes five years ago? No, I don't think that's how it's, I don't think that many people are arguing that's how quickly it's gonna, gonna evolve. And so people might be investing a little ahead of the curve here. So I think you're right in a lot of ways. So when you look at it, like technically, like the exit rate didn't, increase it actually went down and also i'm just quoting ken because i read this piece this morning i was just really into it the exit amount actually went down by five percent from now in 2020 since 2010 but like the ipo size delta is like 7.6 x which is pretty crazy yeah and i think because of people like you all who come in and hit full stack investment and can write checks well you guys can write checks from like five million to 200 million dollars or something or am i wrong yes that's right when we want to we can so you think about it, right? If it's you all or Sequoia or Andreessen or whoever it might be, if that's the case and you all can pretty much get the pick of the litter, like you find yourself in a position to where like relative to the size of your fund, like some of these entry valuations don't make that much of a difference as long as you get your name into those winners. Because one thing that oh, I, I completely agree, I completely agree with you. Now, unfortunately, that is not true for our fund. I think, that I think that strategy for some of the larger funds is true, right? These funds, the funds that you just cited are like 20 billion plus AUM funds. True, true. I th for us, like, we, we think we're a little bit more sniper approach, right? Than, than call it like tiger, right? Which is the opposite approach. I think they would admit that themselves. But so that's the problem, right? Like I actually think folks that are putting in like $20 million into every company at basically any valuation, I think they'll do okay. In fact, I think they might even do well because I am highly optimistic about software as a whole doing well. But when you have to put in our, in our case, like 10% of our fund into a single company, it better work. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I'm curious as to how a lot of funds will adapt as people scale AUM across the board. But let's yeah. see, Clay, we want to hear your voice, one. And two, Ankit, Clay and I have been opening up the, the doors for people to ask us anything they want as we transition into our quick fire questions that Clay handles. So. You got any yeah, questions? Well, tell me, I want to know. I want to know what you guys are up to because it sounds like you're starting to really spend time on, on Confluence and really prioritize that, which is exciting. What's next? Yeah, honestly, this is a really good time to ask that question. Clay recently transitioned out of uh, his role at Mucker and he's working at Visible. And 
Also, shout out to Mike over at Visible. And I recently transitioned out of my role at Great Point Ventures, and we are spending a ton more time on Confluence. What we're trying to do is, not, not even what we're trying to do, I guess now it's official. What we're trying to do is democratize access to economics for the entirety of our community. So we launched the Access Fund. We did our first deal last week in Flutterwave, which was crazy, like Tiger Global. Ironically, BST, Visa, PayPal, FIS, et cetera, all the big hitters are in it. And this could end up being like the Stripe equivalent of Africa. We'll see what happens. And this week we're putting out two more deals. What we're trying to do is find ways to flip the, the narrative of being a junior investor. So right now, if you're a junior investor, you pretty much make no care. You make over half the time none. And if you do, you make between zero and 1% carry. And in that scenario, you're actually in a really kind of screwed up position because the average tenure in the space is two years to three years, but the average cliff is like somewhere between four and seven years. <laughs> and that means you're effectively getting no carry while you're also being underpaid if you're not lucky enough to be at a growth equity shop. And even then, like sometimes you're getting underpaid relative to your peers, depending on the type of shop they run. And what we want to do is just let people in our community bring us deals that we either co-invest them with their funds without taking up much space on their cap table or that their fund doesn't want to do. And then we'll give them carry 25% or more with no cliff in that deal so that they can start to build wealth for themselves. And then on the flip side, we want to bring access to building a great portfolio for the members in our actual community. So what we want to do is say, hey, we, we raised some LP capital. We'll make sure that we meet the minimum to make it into that cap table. And then we'll let everyone else in the Confluence community in at a 2K minimum check. Some deals will be a little higher if they're like hyper competitive, but we want to always make things as accessible as possible. The last piece there is just as a founder, taking a check from us is you're effectively getting, call it anywhere between a hundred funds with an individual supporting you. Or in some cases, if it's a really competitive deal, a really great deal, and we raise a larger allocation on that cap table, a few hundred funds. And every single one of us can help you for, for the price of one check. So you don't have to choose between so many funds. And that's what we've been focusing on. And then Clay, you should definitely add anything on top of that. Yeah, I think that kind of covers most of it. As Tyler said, I just transitioned out of the last role, started a new one this week. So I've been underwater, just getting up to speed on stuff, but like a moonlighting and like getting back to Tyler as quick as I can on all things syndicate related or just Confluence related in general. And I think with this, what's cool about Confluence is like both of us are planning on this being a really long-term project that might just have like really delayed monetization of the project, if that makes any sense. Like we're not looking for short-term gratification. I think our plan with syndicates is we only benefit of everybody else in the group benefits, which is cool. So now we're just trying to put the pieces in place with that and execute where we can. But yeah, I think Tyler covered all of it of what we're up to over the next few months. And Clay, where are you going to be based and what are you going to be focusing on in the, in the new gig? Yeah, I'm with Visible VC. I don't know if you've connected with them or Mike Grease. He's actually in Confluence. Again, shout out Mike. He's a man. And I'm doing growth partnerships with them. So Visible helps both startups and their investors better update their stakeholders. So for startups, it's obviously anybody on the cap table. For investors, it's their LP base. As you're probably aware, that process today for a lot of funds is pretty manual and requires the analysts, somebody like myself to go and wrangle a bunch of information from the entire portfolio every three to six months or whatever the right cadence is. Just get a bunch of static information and then repeat the process again whenever it comes time to report that info again. 
to LP base. So Visible allows that to happen in a more streamlined fashion, automates communication to companies, allows you as the investor to have an updated dashboard so you're able to understand where everybody stands, where to prioritize your time within the portfolio and just better update all your key stakeholders. So it's remote indefinitely, which is really cool. So I'm staying in South Florida for a while and then I'm going to see what makes sense in the summer. But yeah, we're a remote first company, which is, which is really cool. So that's my new gig. I think I'm officially announcing that to the world right now. Congratulations. That's great. With that, you got any other questions or should we jump into the, the quick fire? Yeah, actually, I do want to know, Tyler, I feel like I didn't really understand to the extent that you spent time in fintech. And if you, I know that's a pretty big, broad world, but I have been wondering where you are most excited about. And if you had to think about the next six months and, and focusing on fintech within that, what, what should I think of what Tyler's spending time on and what's going to be interesting? Ah. So what's really interesting about me and fintech, so I spent my first two official years in, in venture working at Point72 Ventures, a Steve Cohen shop, and I was doing international fintech. So everything from payments as a service to banking as a service to uh, really interesting strategies that we would consider like a hook with uh, a hook to get customers, whether it be in the enterprise SMB or consumer space. And then piling on a ton of other fintechs, usually through APIs or some type of smart means of distributing like an insurance product or a lending product and things of that nature. For me, those are all really sick. And I think looking at those areas right now, they're starting to heat up and you're starting to see a lot of the winners emerge. Like Point72, for instance, had Drive Wealth. Yeah. Um, at Great Point, we did Even Financial, which we're actually going to be doing, which this is a release here as well. We're actually going to be bringing to the Confluence community this week. And... The way that I'm seeing the world right now is that these infrastructure players, assuming they can get the right distribution partners are really interesting. And the, the world is very broad, so I don't want to dive too much into that during this interview because I want to focus on you. But how about this? Anyone who wants to talk fintech with me, hit me at Tyler at Confluence VC, and then we'll do a lot of work. We're also doing Confluence fintech meetups. And then Ankit, I'll hit you afterwards. But our first two deals are in fintech. First was Flutterwave, which is API play and infrastructure play in Africa. And then even financial, which is the future of integrated financial services in the US. So that's it kind of give you a flavor of what I'm excited about. Oh, last piece is I just looked at this company through one of our LPs for the access fund. And what it's doing is taking the, the space that you see, which is like the buy now pay later, like the Klarna's of firms, quad pays, et cetera, of the world. And they're doing that uh, through a card and the company's seemingly grown pretty quickly in, in the UK. And I haven't done enough due diligence on this yet, but what I do love about it is that instead of the merchant owning the customer relationship, because a big thesis I had developed over the years is that whoever owns the customer relationship and influence and data and then distribute whatever it is they want to them, which is why I see like telcos, enterprise companies, benefits and POS providers starting to become effectively like large scale finance companies or financial service distribution companies is well positioned. So this company is giving people over the top card on top of the MasterCard rails. And instead of being dependent on the merchant, giving them some type of percentage of their processing fee or whatever fees that they create, they now make money on affiliate marketing. They make money on data sales. They make money on interchange and they can distribute debit products in addition to a whole bunch of other products. So we'll see how that plays out maybe be greater to have that version or a version of that company in the U S because I think they might come here soon. 
But that's something I'm excited to learn a bit more about because I think that firms and Klarna's Afterpays, et cetera, of the world kind of got beat up in the public markets. And it's probably because, again, they didn't own the customers. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, does it scare you that there are a ton of consumer lending companies out there? They're, they're, they're in different forms and functions and they look a little different than each other, but there's a lot of consumer lending out there and a lot of it's enabled by fintech. At what point does that get you thinking about over leveraging consumers in the US? It makes me think about it frequently, but if you think about the buy now, pay later solutions, those are technically protecting against that. And I also think that as underwriting systems continue to improve, we'll start to see less and less people getting loans that they're not qualified to receive. But it is a huge problem. Just more generally, we are likely to face a huge financial decline. If innovation across like, call it 10 different areas that are gonna change the world are happening at the same time, we'll definitely see some type of downturn. And I am concerned. So as an investor, my thesis here is, if you get into a good company that owns the infrastructure, then you're probably well positioned whether or not we have to weather a storm. Yeah. What, I, what I'm not as interested in is companies who have to go raise their own balance sheets. I think that's ridiculous today, unless you're like at phenomenal scale and have an incredible underwriting team. Yeah. Um, and I'm not interested in companies that tell me that they're going to figure out profitability later. I'm just not into it. I know Jeff Bezos pioneered this, but if you are a consumer fintech company and you're telling me that like your customers are worth something and that's going to be dependent on a balance sheet or you adding on all these different fintech APIs that to me, you haven't proven that you actually have the wherewithal to properly implement. I'm very concerned, especially given the existing markets, not because you may not be able to turn it on, but because I think the markets are going to wake up and people are going to become a lot more skittish when, when things start to take a sharp turn in the next two years. Absolutely, especially in lending. I've, I've spent enough time in lending to know that if you're not unit economic positive and even maybe overall profitable very early on, then selling the story that you'll get there eventually is, is a really tough one. Yeah, it's just a question of who gets caught holding the bag. And especially as you start to see it more and more in emerging markets with their capital markets, providers just aren't as stable and their general environments are incredibly more volatile and you effectively will have to pay a huge cost of capital to get it from elsewhere. Like you just don't want to be in those positions. So I'm, I'm staying away from it unless I see some way for me to get liquid in the next year or two. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you are. The, the problem is people like you who provide this liquidity are too smart to, to take my bet. Yeah, exactly. That's what people should do. Raise hundred X series A and then take a, take some secondary money. Put it in the spec. Oh my God. Okay. So, we, we got to get to this quick fire round, but I would love to get your thesis on you all acquiring people's portfolios and then just putting them in SPACs. Yeah, that's the talk about who gets left hole in the bag, right? If that's the long-term strategy of SPACing as much as you can and, and, and get, taking early liquidity, I think that's tough because as we've seen just in the last couple of days here, the market can turn. We've had a couple of SPAC exits already in the portfolio, 23andMe and both Hims and, and, and Hims and Hers um, have both gone out that way. We've got other companies that are IPOing and, and, and thinking about it in the next um, 12 to 18 months. And a SPAC is a legitimate way for them to think about it. But, but I think as soon as you start thinking about it as a, a money-making scheme, that's when you're probably not thinking about it. And so we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. SPACs are, are, are an interesting way of getting liquidity, but I don't think should ever be the reason you make an investment. What I would say is that there's an opportunity for you to acquire a few people's portfolios, take specific pieces from each of them, put them in SPACs, and then quickly create enough liquidity to cover the cost of those acquisitions for you all. 
I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, we still underwrite to a several X return. And so if we can find a way to do that and still still capture the upside, then absolutely. Um, I think it could be interesting. I will say, though, as of now, we really think of ourselves more as like long-term investors investing into companies that will continue to accrete value over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, everyone, this is how me and Ankit's conversations tend to go. Always. It's about investing or me trying Literally to get into Costa Rica with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly well, like it. Well, look, Clay, Clay, can you, can you take us into these quick questions? Because Ankit definitely has some gems for, for everyone who's listening. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so Anka, we do these at the end. These are, we have five questions. These are supposed to be answered in two sentences or less. We tell everyone we have a really bad hit rate of guests actually answering them in two sentences or less, but just trying to put that as like our idea of a guardrail. First one is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Uh, A lot of people say to quote, just keep your head down. I think all of us have probably heard that at some point. I don't think that's great advice. I think you should pick your head up from time to time and reevaluate your situation, your decisions, your plans. And I think we've we've spoken about mentors already here on the show, but I think a lot of my my best mentors who've given me the best advice have been the ones who've um, encouraged me not to just keep my head down and to really be more aware and willing to change your situation if you don't if you're not happy. Yeah, love it. It's good advice. All right, next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? I've started to prioritize sleep a lot more. I've just noticed an incredible difference in really a lot of my productivity, happiness, all of that good stuff when I prioritize sleep. And I used to do it the other way around where I would demote sleep and put everything else above it. And now I've tried to flip that and it's been great. Yeah. My sleeping habits are so bad right now. I really need to get those better, but I, I couldn't agree more. All right, next one. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? I'm sure you've heard it before, but the lone wolf approach to investing is not my style. I, I really enjoy working in teams. And so being solo through a lot of the investing process is probably my least favorite part about venture. I think we try to do things a little differently at NewView, and that's the advantage of being at a fund where you can shape process, but we build invest, investment theses, market maps, thematic research. We do this all together in, in groups uh, or at least pairs. And I think there's other things you can do to counteract that solo approach. And even if that means working with a friend at a different fund who might, be, might have similar um, interests, I think there's things you can do, but anything you can do to make it less of a solo game for me is great. Totally. Couldn't agree more. That uh, resonates a ton. I mean, I think that's like how Tyler and I came to meet in the first place. I think both of us were frustrated. It felt like we were somewhat on an island in the last role and then realized yeah. working with somebody really closely is it's a lot more fun. I mean, you get a lot more out of it. So totally for agree. Sure. I right, got two more here. So best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. Realize we've already touched on this a little bit, but curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, the best advice I got from somebody on just the job search in general, I think it's true of any job search really, is to remember to make the ask. Most people are happy to help. And even if most people are not happy to help, some people are happy to help. And screw the people who are not happy to help. So if you make the ask, I think you'll find the people who want to help you. And and I'd encourage everyone to do that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think especially when I was younger, not that I'm old now, I feel like I'm still really young. 
At least I like to think that. I feel like people, for the most part, want to say yes to helping you out. But I was always scared to make that ask, personally. Like, I just felt awkward asking for something, especially somebody that was a new contact or was a stranger was the first time I was meeting them. I think that's really good advice, though. Yeah, we've all probably been on those coffee chats, right? Where the coffee chat or whatever you want to call it, informational call, whatever, ends and like nobody asks anything of the other person. And so now if, if that happens to me, uh, I'll tell the person who's contacted me, hey, are you forgetting to ask me something? <laughs> and it catches them off guard, but I'm trying to just tell them, hey, you can ask. I'm happy to help. Yeah, totally. I, again, couldn't agree more. All right, last one here. Who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? already gave credit to Drew Oding at 8VC, who's one of the smartest people I know. Definitely a mentor of mine and someone who has, has helped me through it all. I'm definitely going to cheat here, though, and say that Ravi, David, and Tim at Newview are uh, exactly who you want to be working with. And they're in very different ways, the exact embodiment of kind of who I want to be when I grow up kind of thing. So that, I think, is important for everyone to have. It's awesome. I second, I second that piece on Drew. He's like my closest mentor in the world, so. Shout out, Drew. Hey, shout out to the, the CMC Mafia right there. Yeah, double shout out, Drew. Tag <laughs> him or something. Cool, man. I think that's all for me. And I think, unless Tyler has anything else, or you have any other questions. I'm all set. Thanks, guys. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. Appreciate you as always, brother. And you guys seem to be right in the middle of a lot of action. So good luck with everything. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Huge thanks again to Anke for coming on this week, and we hope that each viewer had picked up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Anke, we've attached his social info in the description below, and you can also find his contact info within the Confluence BC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.